Chapter 1 of A Royal Son and Mother. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Royal Son and Mother by Pauline von Eugel. Chapter 1 Germany. It is rather strange that no times should have differed from one another more widely than the 18th and 19th centuries. We feel more in sympathy with, say, the 4th or 5th century that produced a Jerome, an Augustine, and a John Chrysostom, an age of decadence, no doubt, and yet one of intense intellectual activity, of deep heart-searching, of vehement thirst after truth than with those days so comparatively close to our own, when all seemed so cold, so colorless, so shallow, when the very first need of man, his need of God, was as though it had died away. Then came the French Revolution, succeeded by the terrible Napoleonic days, when apathy and indolence had perforce to be shaken off, and men were roused to the consciousness that there was still such a thing as patriotism in the world, that noble enthusiasms needed but the strong winds of adversity to fan them into flame, and yet how deep-seated were the nervelessness and indolence of the children of an effete civilization. Had the Corsican tyrant worn his laurels with one degree less of insolence, had his despotism been a little less brutal, German princes and Russian statesmen and Italian diplomatists might have gone on obligingly handing him over crown after crown. An age barren in patriots is also an age barren in saints. The man who cannot be fired to a lofty enthusiasm, to heroic self-sacrifice for his country, is not made of the same stuff as those blessedly violent ones who carry the kingdom of heaven by storm. Hence, we see a lamentable dead level in the religious life of the 18th century. The gentle Anna Emmerich was almost persecuted by good men for having the stigmata. Anything abnormal, anything like direct interference on the part of heaven with the ordinary jog-trot of human existence aroused suspicion, even resentment. There was indeed faith, beautiful and deep-rooted, among the Catholic poor, But the wise of this world had not only lost faith, but lost all respect for faith. It was looked upon as something obsolete, useless, no longer capable of exercising any power over the lives of men. Bound, as they said, to die out among the lower orders of society, the upper classes had already flung it aside as soon as the fashionable French philosophy had won the day. It was at this period of spiritual darkness, as yet showing no signs of the grand revival to come, that Amélie von Schmettnau was born in Berlin in the year 1748. Field Marshal Count von Schmettnau, her father, was a Protestant, but as her mother was a nominal Catholic, Amélie was to be brought up in the old faith. She was sent at a very early age to a convent school in Breslau, from whence at fourteen she returned good and innocent, but with a very imperfect education. I felt, she wrote in later years, 
as though i had dropped from the skies to find myself abruptly removed from the atmosphere of an enclosed convent to that of my mother's house one of those most frequented by the gay world of berlin frederick the great had received voltaire with open arms at his court and the french infidel had taught fashionable german society to sneer in the most approved style at all things great and holy the grand old language of their fathers was no longer tolerated in polished circles only french was to be spoken and written and with the old language the old beliefs were to go too and if possible that which has been well called the glory of the teutonic race its hunger and thirst after god amelie von schmettnau whose rare abilities fitted her to shine so brilliantly in her mother's salon was now sent to an educational establishment in berlin conducted by an avowed french atheist the girl remained there about eighteen months to return home once more still innocent and in one sense unspoiled but with no faith whatever left her beauty her great talents her musical accomplishments and a certain innate refinement and distinction quickly made her a great favorite at court in seventeen sixty eight she went to aix-la-chapelle as lady-in-waiting to one of the german princesses here she met prince galitzin the russian ambassador to france he was a man considerably older than the interesting young girl but perhaps all the quicker to discern and appreciate her superior qualities after a short acquaintance he made her an offer of marriage that was accepted both by amelie herself and her relatives though for very different reasons it was a brilliant marriage this recommended the prince to her family with amelie this side of the question had not the least weight in after years she wrote to an intimate friend my heart did not feel the need of what is generally called love but an affection that would lead one to desire and seek the perfection of the person one cared for this i felt myself strongly capable of it was an idea that had taken deep root within me and had become necessary to my happiness such an ideal was quite independent of externals I believed the prince could be everything to me if he but shared these views. Alas, so far from sharing them, he was not even capable of comprehending them. He proved himself in many ways a kind husband and father, but he was a disciple of the new school, which owned Voltaire, Diderot, D'Alembert, and the other encyclopedists for its leaders, and in their philosophy, poor amelie's idealism had no place indeed proof does not seem wanting that the evil tree french philosophy brought forth evil fruit in the moral conduct of amelie's husband which explains the long years of their separation but over this the high-souled wife has thrown a veil which it would be useless and ungenerous now to draw aside at the time of their marriage the young wife was almost as little of a christian as her elderly husband but while she was groping toward the light in a darkness that oppressed her 
he was content with his own shallow views of life shortly after their marriage prince gallitzin took his beautiful bride to st petersburg she was presented to the famous empress catherine who soon after appointed prince gallitzin minister to the hague in berlin on their way to holland marie anna mimi their only daughter was born and a year later in december seventeen seventy at the hague their only son demetrius amelie's life was now seemingly a brilliant one rich young and beautiful highly gifted blessed with two dearly loved children she was not happy in vain she writes did i throw myself into the distractions and amusements of the great world i brought back after these entertainments visits dances theatricals and other frivolities only an increased fruitless longing after something higher something better which i could speak of to no one it was seldom that i did not cry myself to sleep i felt like one of those actors who have to amuse others on the stage while in secret they are shedding bitter tears she felt a great longing to lead a quiet retired life devoted to study and the education of her children but the obstacles in the way of such a plan seemed insurmountable and now we can but admire how god himself leads onward the soul that is unconsciously striving after him diderot one of the french atheistic philosophers was for a time living at the embassy as prince gallitzin's guest amelie opened her heart to him and he approved of her wish to devote herself to philosophy and to give up the world and its frivolities he undertook to obtain her husband's consent which he did and in future whilst keeping on cordial terms corresponding regularly and meeting occasionally the prince and his wife pursued their very different ways apart amelie never did things by halves she took care quickly to burn her ships behind her she cut herself off from all society save that of a chosen set of intimate friends of like mind with herself every luxury of dress which then was at its height was rigorously renounced her beautiful dark hair in which splendid costly pearls had been wont to gleam and which had been particularly admired was shaven off and a black flat wig worn instead the gay embassy was abandoned for a plain little country house situated between the hague and shevelingen and as a warning to visitors over the door hung a signboard with a strange device nithuis not at home amelie was now exceedingly happy soon i felt such comfort in this new life in constant intercourse with my children in gradual advance in knowledge and above all in the peace of conscience with which i every night retired to rest that still higher thoughts found room in my mind god and my own soul came to be the usual subjects of my reflections and investigations that amelie gallitzin's young children received a very strange education her most ardent admirers would not seek to deny it must be remembered she was really educating herself trying first one system and then another anxious to put what she read into practice 
and making many an experiment with the poor little boy and girl mimi the daughter being somewhat of an amiable non-entity was affected comparatively little by the educational vagarities of her mother at one time she and her brother were made to run about barefoot at another to plunge into the cold river from a bridge to harden them and make them fearless but with mitri demetrius clever impulsive sensitive refined mistakes were likely to be fraught with evil consequences that his mother who loved him so dearly and whom he resembled so much later on in his splendid spirit of self-sacrifice and utter unworldliness sorely misunderstood him seems certain from the first she had an impossibly high standard for the poor boy who naturally spirited was forever being checked and veered round like a pony in a game of polo this led to a seeming indecision and weakness of character very foreign to his real nature if you do not know where you stand it is difficult to put your foot down now to his mother who was all fire and energy anything like weakness and half-heartedness was of all things most intolerable his father who saw the boy but seldom judged far more correctly when he said that lad has really a tremendous will of his own and will always go counter to the stream and yet all the different systems of philosophy and education some absurd enough that were tried on herself and her two children by the princess were adopted and abandoned with such earnestness of purpose such a single-eyed desire to do not only right but the best that we feel the sacred heart must have been touched and we do not wonder that our generous god should have made all things cooperate unto good to that favored mother and son who were by and by to love him with a love nothing short of heroic demetrius had a prodigious memory and in his old age could still describe how when he was four years old he was taken to see the empress catherine who petted the pretty fair-haired blue-eyed child and then and there presented him with that ensign's commission in the russian army which was destined to be the source of so much trouble he remembered those early days and their sumptuous elegance in which as to the manner born he had been the little tyrant ordering about servants and serfs in most lordly style but soon all that was changed he was required to live in quite a poor way to wait upon himself and not to be spared the rod for childish misdemeanors in a memorandum from the princess to the children's tutor we find the following keep a sharp lookout on the children's chief faults mimi is talkative vindictive and quarrelsome and mitri gives me much pain by his inveterate laziness and absurd want of pluck very serious are her letters to her son who was after all but a little boy on his fourteenth birthday she wrote to him my thoughts to-day are a mixture of joy and dread my first thought on awaking was certainly one of joy love and gratitude that god had given you to me that he had granted me the grace to bring a soul into the world destined perhaps to eternal salvation but oh this 
perhaps here came another cruel thought fraught with fear and great uneasiness Today i said to myself he has lived fourteen years and he is still alas quite willless and colorless creeping along life according to the lead and will-power of others this terrible thought suggested the doubt whether this being i had brought into the world could ever grow up into a man pleasing to god and heir of salvation or whether in spite of all the excellent gifts bestowed upon him by an all-good creator to enable him to be one of the best and happiest of men whether in spite of my anxieties prayers entreaties he would continue to hasten on toward destruction for a while i had been full of better hopes which i gladly own have not altogether left me but they have all grown dim since i have seen the ever-recurring signs of the slavish way in which you sink back into your dreadful sloth and want of energy have mercy on him heavenly father have mercy on him and on me hear him help him and strengthen him when he prays with sincerity and a firm will lord thou who knowest all things thou knowest that i care nothing for the praise of men for riches, for honors, either for him or for myself, but only for the honor pleasing thee, and for the happiness of both together drawing nearer and nearer to thee, till we shall be united in that love and blessedness which thou hast promised us for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But in quoting this remarkable letter, we are anticipating in the year 1779 the princess began to think of a change of residence her little retreat did not afford the necessary means of education for children beyond a certain age at first geneva suggested itself as a likely place it was in the heyday of its reputation as a city of culture and modern enlightenment moreover prince galitzin owned a small property in its neighborhood and readily gave his assent to a family migration but it was not to be god was about to lead the eager earnest groping soul surely and sweetly into his pleasant paths of peace before geneva had been finally settled upon amelie was told wonders of a new educational system introduced by franz von furstenberg as minister of prince maximilian of cologne into the town of munster and other districts of westphalia this holy and enlightened priest was greatly in advance of his age and had devised such an excellent scheme for public education that even infidel philosophers were forced to express wonder and admiration the princess was far too eager to investigate anything likely to benefit her two children not to decide upon a visit to munster as soon as she had read one of furstenberg's pamphlets from their first acquaintance this truly great man made a profound impression upon her in her letters to her husband she always speaks of furstenberg as le grand homme this admiration soon ripened into a friendship which made her feel the priest's counsel and support necessary to her in the great tasks of her life the education of her children 
moreover furstenberg did not stand alone at his side was the saintly overberg who devoted his time and talents to teaching the teachers of the poor she felt and with reason that she now lived in an entirely new world her new friends did not talk religion to her that would at once have repelled her they lived religion their lives were obviously the fruit of an unseen deep root amelie asked no questions but she basked in this sunny atmosphere of light and life from which she felt it impossible to tear herself away she rented a small country place known as angel moda in the neighborhood of munster and now at length the days of her real education had begun to her own children mimi and mitri were added amelie von schmettau who afterward became a nun in vienna george a son of the celebrated jacobi and the drost vischerings one of whom became dean the other bishop of munster the princess in her anxious search after truth and goodness had lost none of her old sprightliness and charm her society to the end was eagerly courted by all the best and most distinguished men of her time but strange to say even yet amelie continued to believe she was attracted to furstenberg and her new friends in spite of rather than because of their religion i could not she once wrote blind myself to the great views and principles of herr von furstenberg but i felt i must forgive him his christianity on the score of early education and prejudice i had started my friendship by frankly asking him kindly not to convert me as in all that concerned almighty god i could stand no meddling that i did not fail to pray to him for light and at the same time kept my heart open to receive it hence even then there could be no question of definite dogmatic christian teaching in the education of her own and her adopted children later she mourned that her want of faith had deprived the children's earlier years of the blessed knowledge of christ once when speaking of a family singularly fortunate in the way the sons had turned out she unhesitatingly ascribed it to their early training in piety and devotion adding that what she had obtained only through infinite pains and labor these christian parents had affected with comparatively little or no trouble but a practical difficulty now arose what were the children no longer little children to be taught about religion it was the very last subject she would entrust to the teaching of a stranger yet what did she herself know or believe about it but at length she solved the vexed problem by resolving to teach them historical christianity as she called it leaving them free to choose their own religion as they grew up but even for this she had to qualify herself and with her usual wholeheartedness she threw herself into a most careful and conscientious study of the bible especially of the new testament and then there arose before her dim and shadowy at first but ever gaining in strength and light and beauty the blessed picture of the incarnate god of him who is not only the light of the new jerusalem but the sunshine the glory of every faithful soul in this vale of tears 
I resolved, she says in her memoirs, to obey our Savior's touching advice. My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. If any man will do the will of him, he shall know of the doctrine. Consequently, I began to act as if I really believed in him. I at once compared my principles and actions with his teaching, and how much did I not find that required attention? Many things that before had hardly seemed to me to be false. I had prayed before only rarely. Now I began to pray frequently, and so often were my petitions answered that I became incapable of doubting the efficacy of prayer. Certain doubts against Christianity also were gradually cleared away. During this time of spiritual growth, she was attacked by a dangerous and tedious illness, during which she was forbidden to exert herself in any way. Even the children's education had to be entrusted to other hands. Hence, she had plenty of leisure for quiet reflection, self-examination, and above all, prayer. And so it came about that on the feast of St. Augustine, which happened also to be her birthday, Amelie's eager, troubled spirit found joy and peace in a very humble confession, her first since the old days of childhood. In the saintly Dr. Overberg, she found not merely a confessor, but a spiritual father, someone who, as she so well expresses it, would care for me sufficiently in spite of all my unlovableness, out of pure Christian zeal, one who would look after me spiritually, train me, correct, comfort, and exhort me. Soon afterward, she wrote to Mitri, somewhat wistfully, Dear child, I am obliged to grieve you so often because I must wish and will for you what till now you have not known how to wish and will for yourself, and I have had to keep you from what you most eagerly desired. Believe me, my dear son, this constant thwarting of your wishes is the hardest of my duties. For though it seems to me as though thereby I might lose your love and confidence, and yet some day, perchance only after I am in my grave, you will learn to bless me for this strictness. And the day did come, for in far distant America, the grand old missionary would at times, with tears in his eyes, talk by the hour in glowing words of his glorious mother. Amelie's children soon followed her example in submitting themselves to the church. On Trinity Sunday, 1787, they were both confirmed. They were now 17 and 18 years of age. Prince Galitzin seemed to have manifested no displeasure at the religious conversion of his wife and children, as his son was receiving the liberal education befitting a youth of his rank, an education that included French music, riding, fencing, dancing, and the more serious studies requisite for the military profession, the father was satisfied and had sufficient good taste and feeling to be glad that to all these things should be added innocence of life and high principle. Seven years earlier, Amelie had considered the children old enough to profit by travel 
and demetrius in later life would recall with interest the visits paid with his mother to the stolbergs at Uten, to jacobi at dusseldorf above all to weimar the athens of germany where the noble herder seems to have attracted the lad more than the great goethe himself though goethe was a sincere admirer of the princess there is an account of an interesting interview between amelie and goethe in after years she full as usual of her beautiful earnest zeal for souls invited goethe to her house at munster an invitation gladly though perhaps a little timorously accepted the great man probably guessed what he was in for and showed no resentment when the princess began after the manner of the saints to speak to her guest of the judgment to come the next day when he departed she accompanied him a stage or two of his journey still speaking to him with that wonderful absolute conviction which invariably commanded respect often admiration and not infrequently brought about conversion alas in the case of goethe it was to bring forth only the first two of these fruits but such pleasant journeys in the fatherland were considered insufficient for the liberal education of the children of the upper classes of those times as demetrius grew older prince galitzin did indeed talk of sending him straight to st petersburg to join the army but his mother was opposed to this plan her catholic heart no doubt shrank from exposing her son whom she considered very unformed very young for his age very infirm of purpose to the corruption of russian high life moreover her motherly vanity wished to see him more polished less angular and so a distant voyage was discussed till now there had been but one place where golden youth could receive its extra coat of gilding but happily paris the gilder's shop could not then be thought of it was in the throes of that terrible revolution of which no one could foresee the end an alternative was decided upon in which we cannot fail to see the guidance of providence the galitzins determined to send their son to america for two years why it seems a little difficult to say probably the princess who looked upon mitri as an idle dreamer and somewhat of a weakling judged that having to shift for himself and stand alone for a time would strengthen and develop his character a young priest named brocius tutor in the drost family had just decided to go to america as a missionary this would be an excellent escort for demetrius whose two years in america were to be spent in making himself conversant with the language laws and habits of this interesting and most flourishing country prince galitzin was an admirer of washington and jefferson and in his letters to his son bids him try for familiar intercourse with such great men his mother too furnished him with an introduction from the bishop of hildesheim and paderborn to the celebrated john carroll first bishop of baltimore indeed in those days the only catholic bishop in the whole of the united states demetrius set out on his long journey in august seventeen ninety two his departure furnishes a curious anecdote 
had the sensitive and high-souled youth of twenty-two summers some presentiment that once gone he would never return that this was a last solemn farewell to home to friends to country in fact to all human brightness at any rate his resolution failed him and with what his mother considered characteristic indecision he began to discuss whether the journey had not best be given up after all the moment was certainly ill-chosen already his mother and he were walking arm in arm to the quay at rotterdam whence a little boat was to take him on board the great ocean vessel for a few minutes amelie said never a word then with flashing eyes she exclaimed mitri i am most heartily ashamed of you and the next moment demetrius found himself floundering in the water he was quickly picked up by the laughing sailors who at a sign from his mother rowed him swiftly away the dear old priest father gallitzin when he merrily told this tale against himself forty-two years later would not be positive that the accident had not perhaps been occasioned by a quick involuntary movement on the part of his mother causing him to stumble and so fall into the sea but he very much inclined to the opinion that she had purposely given him this wholesome ducking End of chapter 1